Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Carbon Curve Podcast. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about combating climate change by removing billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, a process known as carbon removal. In this show, I speak to people taking a collective action approach to scaling up this essential climate solution. Scaling up carbon removal is not just a scientific or technical challenge. It's multidimensional and requires the participation of a diverse group of stakeholders. My goal is to highlight these different dimensions and make carbon removal more accessible to people so that they can find a way to get involved in developing the field. In today's episode, I speak to Chris Neidl from the Open Air Collective about the role of climate activism. When people hear about climate activism, they think about Greta Thunberg or Extinction Rebellion. But Open Air has adopted a unique approach to activism, one that mobilizes people to not just support, but co-create policies at the local, state, and federal level to scale up carbon removal. It's grounded in open source principles like decentralization and peer production. And the movement is growing. People are discovering ways to get involved in carbon removal that draws on their unique backgrounds and experiences, which I think will make the field more dynamic and more diverse. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. If you're interested in getting deeper on carbon removal, please subscribe to my newsletter at carboncurve.substack.com. Finally, if you have any feedback on the show or want to get in touch, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or LinkedIn. So without further delay, let's get started. Hi, everyone. Today's guest is Chris Neidl. Chris is the co-founder of Open Air, a global volunteer collective launched in 2019 to advance carbon dioxide removal through member-driven advocacy and research and development missions. In this role, Chris has helped lead CDR-focused policy campaigns at the municipal, state, and national levels, including the Lone-Bodied Carbon Concrete Leadership Act, or LECLA, the Carbon Dioxide Removal Leadership Act, or CDRLA, and the Luxembourg Negative Emissions Tariff. Chris came to direct air capture and carbon removal from a 15-year career in solar energy, which spanned diverse research, activist, and project management roles in North America, South Asia, Afghanistan, and East Africa. Chris is an upstate New York native and longtime Brooklyn resident currently based in Costa Rica. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, Naeem. Pleasure to be here, man. I'm personally a big fan of the Open Air Collective. I've been involved in it for a couple of years now, and it was a, a key entry point for me to break into working on climate. I jokingly refer to the Open Air Collective as the Wu-Tang Clan of carbon removal, <laughs> in that it's it's made up of people who individually are super talented, impressive, and dedicated, but when they come together as part of open air, they are just a force multiplier in the space. And you and I met a couple of years ago over LinkedIn and quickly realized we had a few things in common. First, we're both alum of the University of British Columbia, probably one of the most beautiful university campuses in the world. Uh, second, we're both passionate about carbon removal. And finally, we both previously worked in international development in some form or another. And I think that final piece, the perspective of working and living in the global south, has informed our perspective on carbon removal. And that I think it's maybe equipped us to think about the challenges and opportunities of carbon removal at a global scale and break free a little bit from the kind of US-centric conversation that you see a lot on this topic. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And let me also just say, you know, Naeem, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm a huge fan of, of what you're doing with Carbon Curve. And, you know, you and I have obviously been on the same page around certain stuff, you know, fundamentally. And when Open Air was in its absolute infancy, 
pre-Discord, you and I started talking then, and I think it was some of those conversations were really formative. And so it's been awesome just sort of swapping ideas and then working with you on some stuff and having some shared passion. And yeah, I think part of it is rooted not just in the fact that we went to an awesome, very underrated school. I think UBC was uh, an amazing education. But I do think that, yeah, that last mile perspective and the kind of creativity you see from people that are operating under extreme resource constraints, the stuff that they're able to come up with is breathtaking sometimes. And so I think you and I both took that to this monumental task of ramping up CDR. Absolutely. Absolutely. And actually, so that's a good segue into the next question here, which is, you know, tell me a bit about your journey from working on deploying solar PV around the world to shifting your focus to direct air capture. How did that all happen? And, and also, if you can also briefly just define direct air capture for folks who aren't aware. Yeah, sure. I'll start with that. Yeah, so direct air capture or DAC, sometimes direct air carbon capture, some people prefer because it's a bit more descriptive or just increasingly diverse range of technologies that are purpose-built to suck carbon out of the air and, and then do things with it. But just in the last year or so, we've seen a lot of different companies and a lot of different technical approaches to this operating on different scales for different markets really take shape. So as a sign of positive progress, it's increasingly difficult to define because it, it does have a lot going on. So, but in terms of, yeah, my journey, I, I, I was a really interested in renewable energy from a very young age. I remember making stuff out of Legos with it, believe it or not. And Always had my sort of eye on it, wasn't sure I was going to fit into it. And then a few years after college, I said, yeah, I read a book about climate change and this is the early 2000s. And I was like, all right, I'm just going to do it. So I moved out to California, learned how to do solar installation, not necessarily a good fit with my, <laughs> my skill set, I guess, not really technically adaptive, but that was my start. And then that quickly got into sort of environmental education around renewables. And then that morphed into advocacy where I've kind of, you know, been ever since focused a lot in New York City, uh, some legislative campaigns. And then in grad school, I, I focused on activism and ways of sort of rendering complex subjects, policy subjects for, you know, activism. And that got me into the kind of off-grid, you know, developing, you know, emerging markets world. I took a class and that led to a job. And so I moved to India and was working on rural electrification projects there and then a really interesting project in Afghanistan, East Africa and other areas and and then learned an enormous amount from that mostly humbling experience and then came back to the US and started a you know a thing that was focused on trying to get solar in sort of high barrier areas in New York City through kind of network based collaborative model and then I started to work for uh, a solar startup uh, called Brooklyn Solarworks which gave me that exposure which was amazing but carbon dioxide removal, believe it or not, I, right after I started my solar career, I saw Klaus Lochner at Columbia give a presentation in a very small room with about 10 of us. And it just blew my mind at the time. And uh, I've been keeping, it's been in my field division ever since. And I've always had a sense when I'm done with solar, I was going to jump into carbon dioxide removal. And that's what I decided to do four years ago after learning so much from solar, so much of what I look at right now, carbon removal really does come from my solar experience, I think. So that's, that's a great story. And so maybe tell us a bit more about the Open Air Collective and what makes it unique relative to other organizations in the climate space. Yeah, so when I was in grad school, uh, you know, I went there to study public policy and how do you sort of get 
larger groups of people involved in obscure policy areas that they're normally locked out of because they're too complex. And so accidentally, while I was doing that, I took some courses at this amazing program called ITP, the Interactive Telecommunications Program at NYU, and was exposed to open source peer production and some of the major thinkers in that world, like Clay Shirky and, you know, Yokai Benkler and, you know, people like that. And so I just really was struck by this idea of how much capability there is out in the general public that can make and do things in parallel to or ahead of formal institutions and organizations, whether they're startups or incumbent businesses or governments or academic institutions. There's just a particular kind of creative cocktail that can come from voluntary participation of very different actors to solve problems. And that to me was a revelation. And so I completely immersed myself in that. That became kind of the focus of my graduate work and I've been trying to apply it to activism ever since. And so open air is really the sort of the manifestation of my interest in carbon removal, but saying rather than starting a nonprofit or a startup, could I create this distributed network that we could get many people participating in that could do a few things that might accelerate things that otherwise wouldn't move as fast if you just had your normal portfolio of, you know, of formal organizations? And can it creatively productify things? Can it come up with ideas that probably wouldn't naturally occur in those other types of institutions because of the kind of creativity I mentioned in the, there's no barrier to proposing things and working on stuff, you know, things that the market wouldn't deliver. And so that was the basic idea. And, and it just sort of has evolved as we've gone, you know, the Discord platform starting two and a half years ago was kind of the key moment that I think of as our founding. And we've been growing ever since. And uh, we have two main domains. We have one that's R&D. So there's your citizen science sort of maker projects focused on CDR technologies that, you know, published under open source. That's awesome. People all over the world. And then advocacy, which is really our activist wing, where we develop internally legislation and, and other policies that we then try to affect in the real world through our groups. And then another thing which you know, named activist business development, which we call it, where we might say there's a particular kind of CDR application that's ready to happen and the market maybe isn't delivering it as quickly as possible. So we, we look at our, a form of activism of how do we almost act like business development activists where we can try to make those connections, put a little bit of funding, help with business planning and make things happen that otherwise wouldn't happen as quickly as possible. So, so I think those are different from you know, what, what a typical organization would, would you know, sort of you know, be structured around. It sounds like you invented the DAO without the crypto distraction. <laughs> I didn't even know what the hell a DAO was until very recently. And now it's a subject of conversation. People are like, are you a DAO? You should be a DAO. <laughs> and when I hear what that stands for, I'm like, oh yeah, that does sound like it. Because, and Naeem, you were one of the first people I talked about this. Like, we are interested in this, like, we are this no legal status. We're just this sort of primordial ooze of action, you know, on our discord. And we like it that way. But we realize as we progress with certain stuff that you might want to build things in the world. You know, you might, might want to manufacture and take over that part of the chain. What would that look like in a way that is consistent with the values that we started with? And so I've been looking at cooperatives for a long time that they lend itself to that modern cooperatives. But DAOs are, are interesting, I think, is a way that we could potentially evolve into that, but to be determined. Yeah, that's very cool. And, and getting into kind of the R&D piece, you know, open air has been... Open Air has been involved in R&D and thought leadership around building out small modular direct air capture, like in the real world, building stuff. Why is their focus on small and modular 
And why is that so important to scaling up direct air capture? Yeah, and hopefully you will post your own very articulate uh, thoughts on this, Naive, in, in this in this post because you and I have been with the Modularity Brothers. You know, we've been talking about this for a long time. Uh, I think you know, and the thing is, it can be very easily confused with some sort of classic environmental tropes. You know, we talk about small and local. It seems you know, it shouldn't be misunderstood with that. It's a very different kind of small local, and and the way we think of small paired with relative simplicity. This really comes from my solar experience is a formula for social creativity and rapid evolution, right? So if you have something that's small and modular, that means that your, your, your economics are really based on how many of those units are you, are you producing? And with each one that you produce, you can learn, you know? And so you can have what are called fast learning rates, typically with things like batteries and solar and LEDs that are more modular in nature, they tend to get cheaper faster because there's more improvement on the production side. But that's also on the installation side, you know, like you and I, you know, when you were in Africa and I was mostly in South Asia, you'd see these entrepreneurs doing incredibly interesting stuff with batteries and solar. And you could just look at it and say, if batteries and solar were just slightly more complex or slightly the minimal deployable unit was slightly larger and more expensive, none of that creativity would be possible, right? You wouldn't have ways of thinking about putting this into the world that is driven from the margins. And that is a big part of the solar story that ultimately is baked into the cake of the product itself. You know, no moving parts, it's hyper modular from the cell all the way up to a utility plant. And so I watched all that happen and, and saw how it was, it was connected with the story of solar and why solar became, you know, the cheapest form of electricity about 25 years ahead of schedule. And I thought that that, we should really look for opportunities like that in DAC, you know, the simpler modular that doesn't preclude large scale deployments, but just the way that solar's modularity doesn't preclude utility scale plants, you know, you, but you can do all of these different things. And the other thing about modularity is you can find these niches, which you and I are often talking about, which is so key for the survivability of a new technology. If you can penetrate various niches that makes you more resilient over time as things shake up, and you're far more likely to be able to do that if you have a relatively modular tech that can drop into different kinds of applications. And so I think it just, key to the survivability and evolution is to have a more modular distributed technology. I think that makes a lot of sense. And especially as we kind of think about, you know, worries about economic recession and, you know, the ability to have something that's a bit more resilient because of multiple use cases can help with getting a technology like direct air capture through the valley of death, right? To when it yeah. needs to really scale up. That's super important. And, and ever since I've known you, you've really evangelized the unique role that open source has played in scaling up new innovations. Why do you think open source can help advance direct air capture? Yeah, I mean, there's open source, which is kind of narrowly the legal status, you know, for different IP where you say it's open and therefore anybody can kind of take it, tweak it, run with it. And there's various different, you know, flavors of that that are, you know, vary in the restrictiveness. So that's extremely interesting. We could talk about why that can be really important, but more broadly, I think peer production where open source sort of sits within is really the interesting thing. And that's where you have, you know, typically distributed networks of people mostly participating on a voluntary basis, solving problems together. And that's most strongly associated with software where it really began. It's really internet enabled. It's you really couldn't do it in the way we do it until the internet showed up and became you know, widely available. But then other domains too, you know, Wikipedia is an example of, of peer production of people you know, in a decentralized way creating value. 
And so for me, it's just that way of getting as many different types of people involved in high quality, impactful roles. You couldn't, a labor market can't do that as fast. And because we're talking about the climate emergency one, and we're talking about this new field that's not totally defined yet by all these large incumbents, it creates this amazing opportunity for the history of peer production, not just the history of carbon dioxide removal, where there's so many people potentially that would be interested in contributing to this because of the nature of the subject. And the, the canvas is still pretty blank. So like there's no, like people can just think really, really creatively about it. So we always just thought that this capability of peer production was arriving historically right at the right time where it could really serve a really high impact, you know, impact multiplier role in the history of CDR, just make it overperform. And so, so that was kind of our thinking. I think that peer production model is really cool and you're absolutely right. The canvas is really blank and the space is nascent enough that there's just so much opportunity to have an impact through that model. And I guess on that point, you know, what are a few of the missions that open air is advancing right now that you're most excited about? Yeah, I think part of it is the translation of peer production and open source to policy. And so we kind of looked at that and we said, well, well, what if you had an open source approach to policymaking rather than this happenstance way in which that baton is passed from California to Japan to Australia to Germany to China, that you're trying to do it all simultaneously through a network where everybody who's developing policy in a particular place, just like software, literally we have a bill on GitHub, our first one that we put on there, the Luxembourg Negative Emissions Tariff, where people can look, optimize, fork it, to use the language of open source into another country to fit that context, Meanwhile, all talking to each other simultaneously. So for us, that's the major fast forward button that we can now have on what solar did in a much more linear type of way. So all of our legislative initiatives and how they sort of virally spread to different jurisdictions through our member, are, that phenomena, in addition to each individual policy is incredibly gratifying because that was a, a hunch we had that that could happen. So we've seen like our CDRLA bill, which you were in some of the early conversations around our thinking around that in New York, Stripe for States, we call it, which is a procurement or an a, you know, advanced market commitment policy where the government is buying CDR on a standards-based sort of scorecard. That helped inspire the federal version of it, which we're now um, pushing for. And then we have possible versions of that taking hold in various other states. And it also helped inspire a mission that we're doing in Ireland. You know, and so it just like starts to move around, you know, so that's extremely exciting. I think the policy, viral policy missions on the R&D side, it's awesome that we've, you know, now we have, you know, the Violet Project, which is our mini DAC unit and Cyan, which was a mini mineralization unit developed by a member of ours named Dahl Winter. But now that's changed where we have that being, those two things being linked together with another member in Brooklyn who's interested in carbon-based 3D printing materials. So we've created this super project called Carbon Forming, which links those together, which we're now developing a, what will hopefully be a once a month contest where any optimization around a particular part of what we're trying to do, that person wins. And that, that itself is almost this sort of game-like structure to accelerate progress around that pro uh, that practice. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that I could go on, a few other things too, but I, I, it would take too long. But this is definitely this quarter we're moving into is this real proliferation of missions that were published on our site, both on R&D and advocacy. And it's just incredibly gratifying to watch what people are coming up with and seeing things actually take place. So it's awesome. Well, actually to get into that a little bit, like, you know, 
beyond this coming quarter, what's what's on deck for Open Air's future? And where do you see the organization going in terms of the role it'll play in the carbon removal field? Yeah, I mean, I hope it will be, it's hard to say. I mean, that's the thing with open source distributed things like this or peer production, because we don't know. I mean, the more complicated the world becomes, the more unpredictable it becomes. So it's more about just keep driving forward and keeping an open mind. But I do like the direction that we are going into national policy, really starting a citizen lobbying effort this summer around the Federal Carbon Dioxide Removal Leadership Act and trying to get district mobilizers in every district around the country to engage with their legislators and do citizen lobbying uh, to get co-sponsors. Having a huge participation on that type of level where we can just go in and be a real force to get creative policy introduced at every single level uh, is really awesome. The Four Corners Carbon Removal Coalition is awesome. Uh, you've been kind of, a, you know, have been hearing about this for a while, but you know, this is where we connected Boulder County, Colorado, and Flagstaff, Arizona, that both independently were incorporating carbon dioxide removal into their climate emergency and climate policy. So we said, well, let's take what local governments do, which is being on the ground, being very resourceful, identifying local possibilities, and moving quickly. But they're limited in their resources. So what if we, we clubbed all of them together where they could combine their financial and ex resources and expertise and become buyers of innovative forms of CDR that are locally rooted. And so we're doing our first RFP for that this summer, but hope we can do that with, you know, clusters of local governments all over the world. That's super, super exciting. So, so there's a lot of stuff that's really popping up. I think we haven't even started on the funding side, you know, like now that we are getting to a scale where we can start being catalytic funders through crowdfunding of all sorts of interesting stuff that private markets of philanthropy might not see, you know, and that that is going to probably be a big thing. What I think is really impressive is just like your ability to engage all these different levels, right? Like the individual to local government, to state government, to now federal policy. Uh, and I had Toby Bryce, a, a, a fellow collector on, on a previous Man. episode on the New York State CDRLA, and actually was wondering, can you say a bit more about the Federal Carbon Dioxide Removal Leadership Act? Like, what is it? What's it trying to do? And what needs to happen in order for it to be successful? Yeah, definitely. I should also say, like, Toby, I'm glad you had him on the show. And, and you know, Toby is one of those examples. And we have many of them within the community that we had a, we had an assumption that hopefully these types of people will show up. And contribute. And so he's exhibit A. I mean, he started this as CDR, which is like must see TV for CDR and with Mega Raghavan, and then did was a key author driving the CDRLA state bill. And so it's just amazing to see people like Toby. And there are many, many others who are just really doing amazing stuff and in, in determining the course of our community and determining the course of CDR in the process. So so anyway, I had to give a shout out to Toby there. Yeah, the CDRLA federal bill, you know, it's a still a novel area of policy, but one that I think people are getting up to speed on really quickly and does have some rare bipartisan mojo that, you know, there are some folks on either side of the aisle that are attracted to it. And so we are very excited that it has, you know, it's introduced in both the Senate and the House. It's got some pretty great sponsors. So the key is right now is we really want to, in addition to what they're doing on the top and other organizations, you know, like Carbon 180 and other you know, nonprofits that really have a strong footprint in Washington and in relationships there, that we can be the mobilizers, that we get our citizen activists out in every single district 
in the country doing citizen lobbying meetings with their members. And then as we go, come up with really creative tactics that might not be something that, you know, typical organizing models might have, particularly online. So, you know, it's anybody's guess. It's a weird cycle right now. I think it has real, real possibility to get passed, particularly if we can elevate it, you know, and get it sufficient attention. And it's very similar to the bill that we have in New York. You know, it's, it's the government buying CDR, ramping that up over time, bringing the cost down over time that they're going to pay to reflect actual cost reduction and to force the market. And it's a multivariable scorecard. It's not just based on cost, but what co-benefits does it deliver? Just transition, environmental justice, job production. And, and smartly, it selects for innovation. That's built into it. Like, how 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 new or novel is it? Like, us buying this, will it, will it potentially give rise to a massive gigaton solution? So really, really well-designed policy, very clearly written. And so, yeah, so let's see what happens. But we got to mobilize like crazy in order to get it above the fray. I mean, you could start a whole organization just on mobilizing around the Carbon Dioxide Removal Leadership Act. That's a big undertaking. Yeah. It's super ambitious. I think that's great. And you're right. The activist role and activist engagement, I think open air is really well suited to do that. Yeah, we hope so. And then that those relationships that are developed through, you know, we, we owe a lot to like Citizens Climate Lobby and other organizations that do this and, and take from their methods that if we can develop those great relationships in key districts, then those are ones that are lines of communication that we have for any policy that we're trying to introduce legislatively. So we think this is like a good footprinting for open air nationally that we hope we'll keep building on for other policies as we go forward. Yeah, that's very cool. It could be very, very high leverage. To zoom out a little bit and look at the carbon removal space more broadly, what do you think is going well and what initiatives are you excited about? And I guess you've talked a little bit about that, but if there are things kind of outside of what we've already discussed, that'd be great to hear about. But as also on the flip side, you know, what makes you a little nervous? Yeah, I mean, I think on the positive side, and you and I showed up before the boom, right? Like, not the boom, but like, there was a moment, you know, around October 2018, I think around when the, the 1.5 CIPCC report came out that terrified everybody and, uh, you know, really mentioned carbon removal as a need, not, not something that we can, you know, you know, choose at this point. That caused almost overnight a lot of different people to come in. And that, I think, is looking at solar, which was exciting in terms of the people that were drawn into that, that is going to yield dividends for this sector forever. The fact that from a very early moment, there was all kinds of people from different backgrounds like, I want in on that. And so you have this very eclectic, you know, go to, go to air miners, you know, go to different places where CDR people convene and you're like, wow, there's people from all kinds of backgrounds that are coming up with ideas talking to each other. And so that in and of itself is a strong creative foundation for, for this new sector. So that's awesome, the general environment. And then we're seeing payoff for that. I mean, look how many different things are coming out, both in academia and in, in the private sector for startups, and then amazing things like, you know, advanced market commitment, you know, from Stripe and, you know, the frontier and stuff like that. So it's just moving really, really fast in a lot of diversity. And then we're also seeing good polling, you know what I mean? Like to the extent we can, I think, you know, in, in the States at least is that Americans are, they want a solution. You know, climate has leapt from a niche issue into a general issue because people's houses are burning down. 
right? So there's a whole other mentality in the mainstream that's very practically oriented about, can we solve this literal emergency rather than trying to make other big points about humans in the world? And I think that we have a good audience of, of folks that are supportive of it that's going to help it politically. So, so those are all really good things. All these kinds of CDR too, that like, you know, it's not just DAC. DAC gets a lot of the, 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 the focus, but like some of the stuff around mineralization and, you know, more durable ag-based stuff and ocean CDR. It's just like, it's awesome. Like there's just, it's really quite breathtaking. So that's good stuff. I don't know if you want to pause there, if there's anything you wanted to comment on, or I can go into the stuff that makes me nervous. Let's get right into the stuff that makes you nervous. Yeah, I think that the problem in and of itself, but that's the source of the inspiration. You know, we are at the edge of a knife right now, you know, and that's the whole reason why the CDR conversation is so alive and well all of a sudden, because it's like we are at the 11th hour, you know, plus 59 minutes. So there's this, the general, you know, being nervous about, can we succeed, you know? I think there's also the issue of, and again, this might be changing by the day, but there's a bad mismatch between established environmental and climate politics and ideologies and CDR, where some of the people that are most invested in the subject of climate have the biggest blinders about the opportunity of CDR. And we see that affecting progress at the state level and certainly we'll encounter that in the federal level at least in the US. So we have to come up with some workable resolution where CDR doesn't just have the cooties, you know, among climate folks and you know and that th those groups don't get so invested in the anti-position that they just can't change their minds, you know. So that, that worries me that we have this sort of internecine sort of fight within the climate movement that really slows and sort of poisons the well. So, so anyway, those are some of the, the good and the bad things that are, you know. And I, I totally agree with you around, you know, the technical challenges. I mean, they're certainly there and they're extremely important. But I think what we underestimate is the complexity and the difficulty of the more political, non-technical challenges, right? How do we get different stakeholder groups on board? How do we quell concerns in the existing environmental community? How do we figure out, you know, getting different political factions interested in direct air capture or carbon removal? You know, these are, these are questions that are not technical and they're not, I think, focused on enough in the carbon removal space. And I'll also say that because you're not set up as a top-down hierarchical you know, NGO type organization, but precisely because you're designed to kind of inspire, motivate, and equip leaders around the world on carbon removal, you're really well suited to do a kind of a ground up advancement to get around some of these non-technical challenges that I think are going to be really, really important to overcome if we ever want to scale up carbon removal. Yeah. I mean, you've talked about this separately too, just about you know, diversity in this field. And there's ways that you can do that where you say diversity is the goal, right? Or there's a way that you say you want diversity because it's the means and that you're going to get both technically and politically, we're not going to get there unless a lot of types of people are involved and they're communicating with each other. That's where the sparks are going to fly. And so for us on the advocacy side, where we say, you know, one thing I've gotten so tired of, and I oh, they won't name names, but just like, from on high, 
these smart people in cities who talk about how we frame this for the dumb people, you know, and I'm like, you know, give me a break, you know, I'm like, what the hell do you know, you know, and what I would rather see is it's a relatively simple proposition we're talking about. It's like, oh, we put that up in the air. Let's take it out of the air. That's part of the solution. People get that. But let's have those people who are on board with it explain why it matters to their own people, like in their own language. You know what I mean? And that 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 creativity about how do you articulate the need and the opportunity for this in truly authentic ways, not ways that are, you know, so, you know, focus grouped. And so I do think open air, particularly if we give people that permission, we say, we want you to tweak this. We want you to do your own thing on it. That's the point, you know, that that will allow it to get into the multiple bloodstreams, you know, faster and deeper. I think that is the hope. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think it's working. It's still early, but I think it's working. And, you know, I think I, you know, I've had a chance to work in on, you know, on climate for a few years now. And when I talk to people who are interested in, in entering the space, you know, I, I, you know, if you want to quit your job and work on climate, that's great, but you don't need to quit your job and work to work on climate. And I think open air has made it really straightforward for volunteers who want to work on addressing climate change, wherever they live in the world to dive in and just get started. Right. And then we see what happens after that. Can you, you know, as our kind of last question here, tell our listeners a little bit more about the process. How does someone get onboarded and involved in open air and can start taking action now? Yeah, and we're constantly trying to improve it as we go. You know, I mean, that's kind of the way we work. We've made progress, still have a lot to work. We'll constantly be at the beginning. <laughs> you know, that's that's the way it really will work, which is fine. But but I'm glad you pointed that part out, you know what I mean? Because there the key is is that there's so much that people can bring to solve problems where we don't need to come up with a generic subservient role of the volunteer, where they support the expert, or they march, or they wear the t-shirt, or they hand out the thing. Like, I'm more interested in the, like, the full person and like, what can they do? They might have the answer to a question. They made it the connection that we need to be the primary driver of production in this field, or a primary driver of it. And so, we're going, we're not competing against the labor market. We're competing against Netflix. We're, we're trying to, we're trying to get people to binge on us. Those people are saying, I want to, I don't want to quit my job. I'm fine with my job, you know, but wouldn't it be awesome if a part of my life too, is that I made a real impact on, you know, leading change in carbon dioxide removal. And I think what we're discovering is there, there really are ways of doing that. I can name so many instances of people coming in who have come from all this background they're the reason why this got sponsored or they're the reason they came up with the answer for this thing. And I think that that is a very powerful thing that, 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 that will draw a lot more people. And I think the way is people come in, we try to have a one-on-one, -on -one. they come into our discord, uh, which is like Slack, a member myself or a few other people will generally try to have a conversation with that person, find out what their interests are, and then direct them to a couple of missions that they can go to a weekly meeting, which we usually do on zoom or, participate in a channel conversation and just kind of window shop a bit. And then if something sticks, you know, we'll be their sort of buddy to help them you know, answer questions. And then hopefully they'll find something. And now there's more and more stuff popping up. So there's more surface area within the community for people to get involved, you know, where before there was like one R&D and one, you know, advocacy thing that was very locally specific. Now we are getting to that critical moment where it's, there's hopefully enough sticky stuff for people to just like, oh, I found it. I can do it, you know? So, so it's really, you know, intimate, it's very like social, 
people come in, you'll start talking to people and you'll be given a couple of options. And if something sticks, it sticks. That's the way it's worked so far and so far so good. Great. And they, I guess they go to openaircollect.cc, is it? Yeah, it's openaircollective.cc. And then you can go to the join thing and there's a form there. And that's what we'll take. We'll let you into the discord once you've, you've filled that out. That's the best way to do it. And then, you know, watch that this is CDR. That's also a good way to understand like, well, what am I interested in when it comes to CDR? You know, there's a lot of great resources we have on our website that helps people sort of shop around for subjects that they're interested in. We have a lot of like interest now in like algae and, you know, very specific forms of, you know, ag-based stuff. And so if they start to look at our content that we produce, they'll get a sense of the kinds of things that are being talked about on the inside as well, which I think is helpful. That's very cool. Chris, thank you so much for the time. I'm a big fan of what you all are working on. I'm proud to be a, a fellow collector and wish you all the best. Uh, thank you so much for the time today. Yeah, and you keep up what you're doing, man. We're, you're, you'll always be part of Open Air. And we're super excited about your take on everything. You're getting an audience as you should be for this. So keep doing what you're doing, man.